once in a while as I'm getting ready to teach. Good to see you, Adam. Uh, you wonder if what you have to say is appropriate uh, timing-wise. and I prepared for this morning out of the Genesis series and then was sort of putting that on hold, uh, wondering if I need to teach on something else just related to Haiti. But uh, we're going to be back in Genesis 12 this morning. That seemed to be where the Lord wanted us. By way of introduction, <clears throat> Walt Disney made a movie in 1940, sort of experimental at the time, called Fantasia. And some say Disney uh, thought of this movie the uh, while inebriated or on drugs or something. I don't know. But it's a, it's a classic movie. And basically he took great classical scores and then he set cartoons to them. And one of those stories in the movie is called The Sorcerer's Apprentice in which uh, little cute Mickey Mouse. How many here have seen Fantasia? Am I seeing? Okay. So you guys know the story. This is good, so you'll see it in your head. But you remember in that segment, little Mickey is the sorcerer's apprentice. And so his master, the, the key magician or sorcerer, is this tall, towering, imposing figure. And he's commissioned Mickey with the task of bailing water from the well, carrying it down some stairs to a basement area, and filling up this large container of water. And so the magician, the sorcerer, leaves... And he leaves his hat and his wand. And so he's supposed to be about his duties. Mickey is taking care of this water. He gets the bright idea to don the magical cap, take the magical wand, and get somebody else to do his work for him, to shift gears a little bit. And lo and behold, the broom that's there sprouts arms, picks up two buckets, goes up to the well and starts carting down the water, filling it up. It all looks good. Of course, the trouble is that Mickey knew how to get the thing started, but he didn't know how to stop it. So when the tub's filled with water, he doesn't know what to do. And so he's trying. He, he's not the sorcerer. He's not the magician. Try and step back, Bill, and see if that takes care of it. Um, do you want me to move? Does it matter? Okay. Okay. Uh, He's getting desperate because now the, the container's overflowing with water and he knows there's going to be a mess to clean up when the big guy gets back. So he takes a hatchet and he chops up the broom. And the trouble with that is every little splinter turns into a full-size broom with two buckets. And Mickey's got this mess. The music swells, of course, it's great. I'm not doing it justice. But, you know, filling the containers become the seas and the waves are now inside this this basement area, and he's in trouble. And, of course, it all ends when the sorcerer, the magician, comes back, takes the cap, takes the wand, cleans up the mess, and the story ends right where it began with Mr. Mickey doing He was supposed to do it. He's got his two buckets. He's bailing water again. In this story, Mickey is uh, doing all these things that he's not supposed to be doing. He's not doing what he was supposed to do the way he was supposed to do it. And he sort of makes this circle. It's like going into a dead-end street. You realize this isn't where I need to go. This won't get me where I want to go. I've got to turn around, and I've got to start all over again. And I'll bet a few of us in here have done that same thing in one way or another. And the text we're in this morning in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, this is exactly what Abram does in this segment this morning. 
Abram's going along fine. If you remember in the opening verses of Genesis 12, God had called Abram, leave your place, leave your family, leave your father's household, come to the land I'll show you. I'll make your name great. I'll bless. And it started out well. Abram did. He shows up in the land of promise. He builds altars, if you remember. He builds altars and worships and proclaims God's name. And then suddenly he takes a turn for the south here in verse 10. Genesis 12, 10. Read there with me if you'd like. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. And sorry as I comment briefly on a few things here in this, in this text. Egypt, uh, your English term Egypt comes from Greek Egyptos, and this is thought to be a translation of the ancient Egyptian word for the city of Memphis. But in the Hebrew, this would be Mizraim. So the Hebrew Mizraim is translated for our sakes Egypt. And Mizraim was the son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. So the Egyptians basically are the descendants of Mizraim, Ham, and Noah. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to his wife, Sarai, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And you're probably aware of this. Pharaoh is not a personal name. It's, it's a title. It's king. It's Caesar. It's lord. It's the crown, something along that line. So essentially, the king of Egypt has taken Sarai into his own harem. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake. That's what Abram was after. And gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord, and in your Bible, if that's all caps as it should be, normally that means Yahweh, that's God's personal name. But Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The question always comes up, what were the plagues? The story doesn't say, and we don't know. But whatever it was, it was identifiable by Pharaoh that this was related to Abram and Sarai. It was their fault. And so somehow this, the jig was up because of the plagues, whatever that looked like. Verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Before we get into the couple of points that are key and that I want to make this morning, let me mention this thing of foreshadowing again. Uh, We talked about this a lot last time we were in Genesis. Um, These early stories are sort of uh, stamps of things to come. They foreshadow events to come. And so you see the key elements of future stories in these early accounts. So, for instance, this thing about there's a famine, and so someone's got to go to a place where food's available, that's, that's Abraham's son Isaac's story, too, in Genesis 26. In fact, you can line these stories up point by point by point. It's also, though, the story of Israel in the land of Egypt and their exodus. 
If any of you like John Salehammer, a commentator, particularly in the Old Testament in the first five books, he does a point-by-point analysis to show if you knew these texts and these passages, if you knew one, you knew all three. They're the same points, point-by-point. Abram in Egypt here. Later on, Genesis 26, Isaac and Rebekah in the land of Gerar during a famine. And then also the nation of Israel in Egypt and their exodus, point by point, it's the same thing. Again, just to suggest at least this, if you were part of the early audience, the Jewish audience, hearing this story for the first time or reading it for the first time, you'd understand that Abram's story was your story. You'd heard this all before. And it would show God's sovereignty, God's plan, God's at work. God said these things had happened, and they did. And also... A text we'll get into later in Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. This is one of the covenant passages where God makes a covenant with Abram. And he tells him, your kids, your descendants, they're going to be slaves in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be there 400 years. And when they leave, they're going to leave with great spoil. And that's Abram's story here. Abram goes down to Egypt and he leaves Egypt with great spoil. So just interesting perhaps, but there's foreshadowing in all of these passages. There's intention if you look for it. Now, to the main point, um, when you read a story like this, maybe you're like me, I read this story and I think, what am I supposed to get out of this? It's a story. And there's no moral judgments brought out in the story. You know, sometimes as you're reading the Bible, there will be an editorial insert in which it will tell you what you're supposed to think. What's the point? In these stories, they just tell us what happened. This is what happened. And I'm thinking, interesting story, what does it all mean? I'm convinced the early Jewish audience knew this. Abram was in the wrong in this story big time. And as we read it, we think it's curious and we wonder what to make of it. But I think the early audience understood they got it. Abram's in the wrong big time. And this guy who started so well through faith, leaving the place he was at, obeying God's call, he blows it. And he goes basically into a dead-end alley. And he's running in circles, going nowhere. He's with Mickey Mouse, the sorcerer's apprentice. He's doing things he's not supposed to do in places God's not called him to go. That's the thing in this story. So, for instance, just hear me out on a few points why I think this is the case. The first is this. Abram left the land God told him to go to. Abram left the place God told him to go. So, in verses 1 through 3, God says, Abram, you go to the land I'll show you. Now, when God tells us to go someplace, the thing to do is to go. And when we get to where we're supposed to be, the thing to do is to stay there. And so the text says a famine came up and so he left. But Abram wasn't supposed to leave. Abram was called to the land of Canaan. That was the place of promise. And Abram was supposed to hang his hat there and stay. And he didn't. Sailhammer in his commentaries makes another point and it's this. When you read from the story of Abram on the story of the Jews in the Old Testament, if you see patriarchs, families, nations, individuals leaving the land of Canaan with almost no exceptions, it's a time of judgment. They're going the wrong direction. Because God's promise to bless was tied geographically to that land. God said, this is the place I'm going to bless you. So when you read stories in the Old Testament, if somebody's leaving the land of promise, it's not a good thing. Abram's leaving the place God told him to go. God had not told him to leave. He'd said, go to the place I'll show you, and I'll bless you there. And things get a little dicey, and Abram heads south. God did not tell him to leave. Abram was supposed to stay there in the land. The second thing, and maybe you guys noticed this, Abram abused his wife. Is this crazy or what? 
Abram abused his wife. This is all about Abram. Verse 13. Hey, say that you're my sister. Why? So that it may go well with me. And of course, Sarai is his half-sister, we know from another text. And in those days, this was not uncommon to marry a partial sibling, a close relative. We don't do that today. But Sarai was his half-sister. You'll find out later. But that's not the point. He's abusing his relationship with his wife for his own benefit. He's supposed to be the protector, the defender, the father, the patriarch, the father figure. And yet this is all about Sarai being used to protect him. It's a reversal of roles. This was abusing the relationship he had with his wife. He was supposed to be taking care of her. Also, think of this. Abram and Sarai don't know this yet, but God has plans to bless them with a special son. That Part of the blessing, the promise to bless, is through their line of promise, the son that they'll have in the future. When Sarai is taken by the Pharaoh, God's plan and his future promise to them to raise up a son through them, it's in peril. Abram's disobedience puts God's plan, if you will, in peril. Now, God's sovereign and he's going to make sure his will is accomplished. But Abram's putting in jeopardy as far as we're able to what God wants to do through his life and Sarai's. The other thing, too, this is one of those stories when you read it, you realize this this uh, abuse of the spouse, this husband not treating his wife right, this is a family sin in Abram's line. So this isn't the last time Abram practices it. His son Isaac, probably aware of this very story, does the same thing with his wife Rebecca. Also his nephew Lot. When you read, people are horrified rightly. When you read in Genesis 19 the story of Sodom, and the angels who don't need any protecting there in, in Lot's house. And Lot offers the crowd his daughters to savage and ravage his daughters to protect people who didn't need protecting anyway. And you're scratching your head thinking, what were you thinking? And later he sleeps with both of his daughters while intoxicated and raises up two lines that are forever Israel, the nation's enemies. So this family sin you see coming up in spades in Abram's life, his son's life, and in the nation's life later. So this not, not fulfilling the role, the call God gave him, just as a husband to take care of his wife, no small thing. A huge thing, and probably the thing that precipitates this whole story, this whole event, this excursion into the dead end that is Egypt for Abram, is that he was acting out of fear and not out of faith. And Abram is stellar in faith in spades when God calls him. Come to a place you don't know. You don't know where you're going. I'll show you. Abram does it. You know, when you read later in Genesis 22, God says, Abram, Isaac's been born. Abram's 100. Sarah's 90. You know, this is a miracle baby for sure. Isaac grows up. He's a young man. What's God say? Take your son, your only son, to the place I'll show you. And you offer him there to me. This would be a hard thing, wouldn't it? I mean, understated. But what's Abram do? He goes up. He binds his son. He raises the knife to slay him, to obey God. Hebrews says that Abram believed in faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead if necessary to keep his promise that through Isaac, all God's promises to Abram would be kept. So you get the picture. We call father the father of faith. And he was. But like all of us, he also had feet of clay. 
And this story is, in a sense, Abram at his worst. He's motivated by fear. The famine comes in and he's saying, where are we going to eat? Or here, we're going to go down to Egypt. I'm afraid somebody's going to get me, so I'll use my wife instead. His whole motivation in this episode is not faith. He's afraid and he's acting and he's making decisions out of the motivation of fear. And you've got to be so careful. When you're acting out of fear, things almost never go right. It's the wrong attitude. It's the wrong mindset for us as those who know God. The other thing was Abram's using deception here. He is stooping to lies to protect himself. You know, when you realize you're starting to hedge the truth, you're in the wrong place, you're doing the wrong thing, something's amiss. Abram is stooped to deception and lies. So at verse 13, say that you're my sister again. In another story, he'll say, no, she really is my sister. That's not the point. He made other people think it was only a sister, not his wife. That's the point. And Pharaoh says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? This is sort of like the book of Jonah. You know, Jonah, the guy that knows God, he's the anti-hero in the book that bears his name, isn't he? Because he's the guy running away from God. Well, here, the Gentile king, he's the upright, honorable one. Abram's the low-down, dirty-dealing deceiver. The roles have been reversed here. Abram's shading the truth. He's stooped to deception And also remember that God said in the call to Abram, what's Abram supposed to do? The effect he's supposed to have on the nations? He's supposed to bring a blessing. What's he bring to Egypt and to Pharaoh? He brings a curse. He brings the plagues. And what's he get? The nations are supposed to bless Abram. What's he get? He gets a rebuke. Pharaoh says, we don't want you around here. You're trouble. Get out. Take your wife and go. And the last, and a point that I think is easy to to miss is this. In verse 18, when Pharaoh says, what is this you have done to me? I don't know if this rings any bells for you, but you've heard this before if you've read the early chapters of Genesis. Because this is the same question. These are the same words God asked Adam when Adam and Eve sinned. So just think, if you're the first audience and they were oral more than we are, they knew things that they'd heard, they memorized a lot, When Pharaoh says to Abram, what is this you have done to me? I have no doubt they're hearing God's words to Adam in the garden, ringing in their ears. What is this that you have done? It's an indictment and the early audience got it. Abram, what have you done? You're just like Adam. In the garden, you've blown it. What is this you have done? This is Abram's low water mark. This story, this is what we're supposed to get. It's not just a curious story. This is the deal. It's Abram at his worst. He left the place God called him. He abused his wife. He was acting out of fearfulness. He resorted to deception. He brings a curse instead of a blessing. And he's reproved with the same question that God had come to Adam with in the garden. Abram at his worst for sure. There's a couple things, a couple points I want to bring out of this. The first is this. The best place for you and me to be is where God's called us. The best place, bar none, for you and I, those who know Christ to be, is right where God's called us. This story says there's a famine. And and the author's sort of generous, right? Moses and God. It was a severe famine. Uh, It was really bad. But you know what? God hadn't told Abram to leave. Abram was supposed to stick it out and trust God for his food in the land of promise. He wasn't supposed to leave. 
when God's called us to a place or a person or a work, and we know that. And I understand sometimes there's ambiguity. We say, Lord, what's your will? What do you want me to do? And maybe we're not always sure. But when you know you're where God wants you to be and you're doing the things God's called you to do, you're not free to pick up and leave till God's told you, pick up and leave. We should have more of the mentality of the soldier who's put at his station and he knows his last command was, you stay here, this is what you're to do. That's what he does until he's relieved of duty. When we're where God's called us to be, doing the things God's called us to do, we're not at liberty to pick up our sticks and go someplace else. We're supposed to stay where God's put us. We're supposed to be about the business God's given us to do. I think we're far too ready, just as Abram was, that a little difficulty comes along. There's a famine. Maybe it's severe even. Maybe things aren't just bad. Maybe they're really bad. And we say, well, it's obvious God doesn't mean me to stay here. Or clearly God's not asking me to put up with this any longer. Does that go through your mind as it does mine and others? The truth is, for Christians, sometimes opposition means you are where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. You know, in the land of the free and the home of the brave, we tend to think God's will always means blue skies and green lights. Life will be easy. You'll be blessed. You'll have peace and joy. And that just is not the case biblically. You know, you read Romans 5. Persecution and distress... They provoke growth in our faith. They help us to persevere. They help Christ's character be formed in us. We look at the famines and we say, God means us to cut and run. God says, no, I'm using that to help you grow. Abram had a famine and he said, boy, it's time to cut out. God says, no, I want you to stay right where you're at and trust me to provide for you. We get a little famine, we get a little hardship, and we say with Abram, Let's head to Egypt. Let's cut our losses. Let's go someplace else. That's not at all what God wants us to do. Sometimes faith, the life of faith, is very unglamorous. It just means hanging in there doing the right thing. And you could sit here this morning and you could feel like my marriage is a wilderness, is a desert, it's a famine. Or my job or my career thought it'd be one thing, something else. Or my school, my friendships, my church. I thought that's where God wanted me to be, but I must be mistaken because there's a famine. Things are hard. Things are severe. That, that has nothing necessarily to do with where God's called you to be or what he's called you to do. Sometimes being faithful means sticking it out in the times of famine and trusting God to provide for you in them anyway. The famine doesn't mean that we're supposed to leave. Think of two, just last point on this. When Jesus was tempted, Jesus, Abram's ultimate son of promise, when Jesus in Luke 4 is, uh, is not just uh, led by the Spirit, he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to go out into the desert place for 40 days and fast. 40 days of hardship, 40 days of famine. He could have cut and run and said, surely this isn't what God meant me to be doing. Ten days was okay. Fifteen I can see, but surely not 30 or 35 or 40. And of course, what's the temptation to him? Jesus has been a hard go. I know you're hungry. You know what? You should end this process. There's a rock. You know what? You could just turn that into a loaf of bread. It'd be all over. You'd be good to go. 
But Jesus knew that wasn't God's will. And so he refuses to. And he entrusts himself to God. And what's God do? God sends the angels. And it says they ministered to Jesus. God had a provision for his son all along. But it would have taken longer than probably most of us would have thought. And maybe we would say with Jesus, oh, you should just give up. This isn't God's will. It was God's will. Forty days of fasting was God's will. Jesus hung on and God honored him in it. So the first point is, don't assume the famine means you're supposed to cut and run. It may mean nothing of the sort. If you're where God wants you to be, doing what he wants you to do, you stick at it. The second point is this. Maybe you're struck too as I was. It looks like Abram sins, does wrong, and gets blessed anyway, doesn't it? He goes to Egypt, he lies, he sort of cheats and steals, and he walks out with all this stuff. It looks like Abram does wrong and gets blessed anyway. And what do we make of this? A couple things, anyway. The first is this. Even when we sin, God oftentimes blesses us anyway. And one of the reasons he does is this. Sometimes God's blessings are tied to God himself, his character, and his promises or his purposes. So sometimes God blesses us even when we sin because in doing so, he's promoting his own agenda and he's honoring his own character and his own name. So for instance, in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23, in a future day from Abram in Israel's history, God says this, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. That's just like Abram. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. God says in Ezekiel's day, I'm going to act Israel for your benefit. But it's not for your sake, it's for my sake. It's for my will and my name. And if you remember in the Exodus account, God at one point says to Moses, that nation that's disobedient to me, you're up here on the mountain getting my law, they're down there worshiping idols. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Do you remember Moses' appeal to God? He says, Lord, the nations know you promised to save Israel and deliver them from Egypt. And if you wipe them out now, the nations will think you couldn't keep your word. God says in Ezekiel, what I'm doing for your benefit is for my name's sake. Sometimes God acts to bless because it has to do with his nature and his plan. Not us. You see the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.13 where Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God can't deny himself. Sometimes God's blessing is because he's upholding his nature, his promises, his will. Another reason God blesses even when we sin is because he's good all the time. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, you are good and do good. You are good and you do good. You know, I love it that in Africa and I believe in Haiti as well, in these impoverished nations, the Christians have a saying, God is good all the time. They don't have what we have, but they say God is good all the time. And that's the truth. God is good, the scripture says, and he does good. And he does good whether we do good or not, because that is his very nature. God is good and he does good. 
We often make the mistake of thinking that God's blessing is an endorsement or is his way of condoning our disobedience. I hear this all the time. Uh, I cheated on my taxes and I saved money and that was a good thing because God blessed me. I left my spouse because it just wasn't good anymore. And God blessed me with a better one. You, You see, people disobey, God appears to bless, and they conclude God's endorsing their sin. That has not, there's no connection there whatsoever. God's blessing or apparent blessing does not mean he's condoning or endorsing what a person's doing. Guys, I'm convinced when we stand before Christ's throne, when Christians stand before Christ's throne, well-known names, Christian names, people are going to be standing before Christ and their works are going to burn up for the wood, straw, and rubble that it was. Because even though lots of people knew them, and maybe many people came to Christ through them, Jesus is going to say, you weren't where I told you to go. You weren't doing what I told you to do. You were disobedient, and I chose to bless anyway. But your works are going to burn up. Why are we doing what we're doing? Are we where God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do? God, by his very nature, God tends to overwhelm our sins with his goodness and kindness and mercy, but that doesn't mean he's condoning us, our sin and our failures and our immorality because he chooses to bless anyway. There's no necessary connection between those two things. Don't presume on God's goodness. By the way, in this same event, God rescues Abram in this story. But you know, later on in a story we'll see in chapter 13 and on, Lot chooses to go live in a place where the men, the people were, the scripture says, exceedingly wicked. And you know, Lot comes out with nothing but himself and his two daughters. And that's not even good. Do you know what I mean? That Lot went where he shouldn't have gone. And God didn't bless at all. Lot lost everything. Lot lost his family, all the wealth he'd taken. He lost it all. God didn't save him out of that. God saved him, but he didn't save the wealth. He didn't get the stuff. He didn't get the blessing. If you think, too, of Jesus again in the temptation in Luke 4, Satan says to Jesus, hey, just cast yourself off the top of that temple. Because, and Satan's clever, he quotes Psalms. Uh, God will send angels, they'll uphold you. You won't hurt your foot. Again, Jesus says, I'm not going to tempt God. I'm not going to disobey and assume God will bless me anyway. I'm not going there, and we shouldn't either. Now, it looks like Abram's blessed in this transaction, in this, in this loop of disobedience, it looks like he's blessed. And so I've said it appears that he's blessed. But you know what? I don't think he was at all. And this is why. He walks away with all this stuff, this wealth, primarily animals and people. You know, later on in the story, Abram's going to have a son, isn't he? That's not the child of promise. And his name is Ishmael. And who's Ishmael born to? He's born to Hagar. And where's Hagar from? She's an Egyptian. Where did they get an Egyptian servant for Sarai? Probably right here. That when Abram leaves the treasure, the blessing he's bringing back, it probably includes the woman that he'll have in God's eyes at some level, an illegitimate child through. And Ishmael, though God will bless Ishmael, it's Ishmael and it's his descendants that will be Israel's enemies 
forever to this day. So one of the blessings of Egypt was a slave girl who becomes the mother of someone who would oppress Abram's child of promise on through the centuries and the millennia. Another thing is this. Abram was wealthy before he went to Egypt. He had plenty of stuff. You know, guys, sometimes more of a good thing is not a good thing. It's just more. So what happens immediately after this story? Well, chapter 13 says, Abram and Lot, they have a falling out. Why? Because they got so many animals. Their herdsmen are fighting with each other. It looks like the stuff Abram accumulated in Egypt just was part of sort of escalating this tension. It might have come eventually, but they've got so much stuff now they can't live together. And this precipitates Lot taking off to a place that's going to be proved to be judgmental for him too. It was just more stuff. They didn't need it. And the last thing is this. In Genesis 15 too, God's talking to Abram. And Abram, basically, this is the bottom line. Abram says, Lord, you can bless me any way you want, but none of it matters because I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. Did Abram care about all the stuff he got? You know, at the end of the day, he didn't. Because as he's looking at his life and I'm going to die and I have no heir, Ishmael's not my heir. I have no heir. He says to God, none of it matters. I'd give it all up for a son. So the blessing, it appears that Abram leaves and sort of gets away with it, but he doesn't. He doesn't. The seeds of dissension and trouble and disunity were sown in this blessing, this stuff he leaves Egypt with. I want to end on a high note, and it is this. I didn't read into chapter 13. This story doesn't end at chapter 12. It ends at chapter 13, verse 4. And if you read there, chapter 13, it says uh, at verse 3, he went on his journeys from the Negev, that's down in the south, near Egypt, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Do you see this loop? Just like Mickey... He, he ends where he started, right back where he should have been all along. This story ends in chapter 13. Abram gets it. What does he do? He goes back to the place of the altar and worship and proclamation. Egypt was a mistake. It was a dead end. He should never have gone down there in the beginning. And at some point, even though the story doesn't say it, we understand that Abram gets it. And so he doesn't just come back into the land of promise. He goes back to the altar at Bethel. And I love this phrase. You'll read it again in Jacob's story. Back to Bethel. Back to Bethel means back to the place of first love. Back to the place of consecration. Back to the point where you gave everything to God. You'll see the same thing in Jacob's life. So Abram goes back to Bethel to the same altar. He worships again and he proclaims God's name. That's the end of the story, which I love. You know, many of us, uh, we have our trips to Egypt. In fact, all of us do in one way or another. We cut and run. We go do something God hasn't called us to do. We leave the thing we're supposed to be doing to go do something else that looks better. Greener pastures, whatever. Better looking spouse, better school, better job. More handsome friends. I don't know. It could be anything. We cut and run. We go to Egypt. We say there's a famine in the land. I'm not hanging out. I'm going to go do something better. Find someone better. Whatever. And we blow it. 
And even though we probably don't think in these terms, we are at that moment, we're not just Abram in Egypt, we're prodigals from Luke 15. We've left the Father's side. You notice there's no mention of worship in Egypt, by the way. It's not until he comes back. There's no worship in Egypt. And the prodigal in, in Luke's story, he leaves the Father's side. And it says in that story, he comes to his senses. The lights go back on. And he says, I got to get back to my dad. I got to go back to my father's household. That's what Abram does here. He says, I've got to go back to that relationship I had with God, exemplified by that altar, that place of consecration, that place of worship. When we blow it, and we do, Christians, we blow it with the best of them. We can outsin the pagans. We can be more deceitful, deceitful than the best of the liars, right? We can steal with the best of them, sin with the best of them. We do. When we come to our senses, we got to follow Abram. We got to go back to Bethel, back to the place of the altar, worship, consecration. There's a forgiveness issue here, of course, for us. First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oftentimes, if you find yourself in Egypt a lot, or if you find yourself in Egypt once because you've blown it really big time, there is a temptation to say, I've sinned too often, or I've sinned too greatly to go back and be accepted by my father, Luke 15, or go back to that altar with Abram in Genesis. If you feel that way, you've got to get over yourself. Because you're making too much of yourself and too little of Christ. And you're making too little of Christ's offering for us on the cross and his Father's forgiveness based on that. When we say to ourselves or to others or to God, I can't go back, I've sinned too greatly, I've sinned too often, we're making too much of ourselves and too little of Christ. Because God sent Abram's son, Jesus, to pay for our sins so that we could come back to the Father's household. And with Abram, we could come back to the place of first love and consecration and worship and proclamation. Abram's trip to Egypt was a huge mistake. It was a failure on his part. It's not just a funny story. It's meant to be a lesson to us. And you know, we rightly see Abram as the father of faith, the key biblical example of faith, and we should. But you know, in this story... Abram is also a key biblical example of repentance and restoration. Father, you say in your word that if we say we have no sin, we are lying. Lord, all of us sin in word, in thought, in deed, in commission, in omission. Lord, thank God that you are greater than our sins. Lord, we thank you that the blood, the life of your Son, the Lord Jesus on the cross, covers a multitude of sins, all of our sins. And Lord, if and when we find ourselves in Egypt, sinning again or with the prodigal in the pig pen, God in heaven, help us come to our senses. Help us to run back to your side, back to your house, back to that altar where we came to know you. Lord, thanks that forgiveness is confession away. We're not stuck in geography. Lord, we can pray to you. We can confess any place, any time. 
Lord thinks that the end of this story for Abram wasn't Egypt, and it wasn't the downside of what appeared to be a blessing, but it was restoration in your presence. And Lord, for all of us, out of those trips of Egypt, Lord willing, we gain a new appreciation of who you are and your rich blessing and your rich, fathomless, depthless forgiveness for us because of Jesus. Lord, help us to see you magnified and high and lifted up and exalted and worthy of our obedience and our faithfulness even in the times of famine. In Jesus' holy name, amen.